0: Hello, everybody. This is your sole host again today, Alan Weima. Today, I am with Nathan, who is a software developer based out of Canada working at Director Digital, who wrote a very interesting article about how to publish static GitHub pages of your documentation using GitHub Actions. And we were just discussing before the show that basically, yeah, GitHub Actions are a little bit kind of cryptic at some times and kind of complicated. (laughs) Maybe he can give some some talk about that. But I think first, you know, let's take to know uh, Nathan. So Nathan, how are you? I'm fine. Thanks. Yeah, so you mentioned to me that you just started getting into Elixir recently, right? Yeah, I started working at Draco Digital in
1: October. And before that, I didn't know anything about Elixir other than the fact that Discord uses it. <laughs> That's the first yeah. time I've heard about Elixir.
0: Yeah. So what were you doing before you got enlightened by Elixir? I was working with Flutter at another company. Oh, wow. You're speaking my language because actually I run a Flutter podcast. All right. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. So so what made you just change from Flutter to Elixir then? I was laid off at the other company. Well, okay, that'll do it for you. <laughs> that'll definitely help <laughs> you to change. Yeah, that, that helped me change.
1: And after looking for what, a month or something like that, a month and a half, I finally got in touch with someone at the company, uh, Dracar and they saw my experience in Golang, and and they they were looking for uh, someone with experience rather than someone with experience with Elixir. So because I had some experience with Go, it's a bit closer to functioning programming languages than others. So yeah, that's what got me in.
2: Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to That's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com.
0: Really? I would have never thought that Go would be a language that you can compare Elixir to. To me, they just don't seem similar nearly at all.
1: No, indeed. (laughs) That's what I thought. I think they were looking for someone with just general software development experience uh the back end and someone who was able to learn new languages. Because in the market where I am in in Quebec, there's a lot of outdated practices or maybe older languages uh, in use. It's mostly Java, C Sharp, and uh, PHP. And by having experience with something new, uh, like Go or Angular or something like that. It showed that I was able to, to learn newer languages I wasn't stuck with the older technologies, things like that.
0: Yeah, and it's actually interesting that you're talking about, uh, you did Flutter and then you went over to Elixir. So do you remember within Flutter, within Dart, they have something called Isolate, right?
1: Yes, I didn't have the, the opportunity to use it since I was working on Flutter web. But yeah, the concept, uh, I've looked at it
0: yeah, actually, the interesting thing. So, on my Flutter podcast, I interviewed one of the creators of Dart, and he actually, if I remember correctly, right, he actually said that the idea of isolates actually came from Erlang, which is quite interesting because basically, isolate, right? It's like a, it's basically like it's basically the same thing as as a process in Elixir, I believe.
1: Oh, okay, that's that's neat. Yeah, I didn't know that. So it's actually great. There's a inspiration that comes from other languages and. We need newer practices and newer languages so it's fun to see some concept traveling through a language to another
0: yeah definitely and it's it's also quite interesting to see like you know that they have this idea and and I think they're still suffering from the same thing that kind of Erlang does it's well I don't know if it's actually suffering in Erlang but I know a lot of people in in dart they're like well why can't I just throw up a thread right what have to use an isolate and yeah, and isolates are kind of a little bit they're they're kind of complicated, but they're not. I don't know how to explain it. it's like it's like something that you can use, but nobody really actually uses it unless it's like very very niche issue yeah
1: I've heard um, places where you can use it like when receiving JSON data to put it in the in your classes that operation can put it in the isolate so to avoid stuttering or avoid uh, missing frames but I've n- never done it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean that's basically that's basically it. Like the only like if you're gonna be working with Dart, you're 99 of the time gonna be using Flutter, and then for Flutter, you just need to keep your frame rate up, right? And so it's only for something that's computation heavy or I/O intensive where you'd actually want to do that. But even that, you could just use a a future, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it does something like that. Like, I think when you use an isolate, you get a future, and at the end of the computation of the isolate, you receive you receive the response.
0: Yeah, so, but yeah, it's interesting to see that, that actually Erlang actually inspired this. And I think with the way Go works too, right, they have these things called Go, Go Channels, or not channel necessarily, right? It's a we call a Go Routine or something. Yeah, so that's very also very similar to Process, if I remember correctly, right? They're just kind of like green threads that get spun up.
1: Yeah, but you don't receive a response from these Go Routines. So you have to use channels to communicate between a Go Routine and the main thread or other Go Routines.
0: Well, that's actually the same thing with Elixir and Erlang, right? Because you can spin up a process and if you don't capture the PID, then you can never send a message back and forth. But I guess yeah, the difference yeah. would be that for a Go routine, you actually have to have a channel first before you spin up the, the Go routine, or am I wrong? Right, right, right. Yeah, so it's still pretty. They're, that's the only thing I can see similar when I think about the two, right? Because Go is such a type language and Elixir is very much like you throw whatever at it and if it breaks then you know that that thing, you probably shouldn't throw at it again.
1: Yeah, something like that the
0: elixir when developing an elixir there's
1: some uh, s- some days i'll come to my computer the project won't work and i don't know why and some other days it will come uh, i will come to my computer and it will work so there's a lot of uh, inconsistency when i'm working in elixir that i didn't find in other
0: languages now is that good or bad or how do you feel about that coming from uh, basically a strictly typed language i mean both dart and go are both strictly typed right right Right, so when or, or is it strictly typed or strongly typed? Maybe just say strongly typed, I think. Or uh, it strictly strongly typed I don't know.
1: a bit dark and think go with strict. No, oh, there's interface, uh, empty interface can use in go, so you can have an empty interface and will accept any value. Uh, I think Elixir, uh the, the, the typing in Elixir it's a bit awkward. It's it reminds me of uh, uh, JavaScript. Even in JavaScript you can use TypeScript to have more more strict typings. It's easier to have you autocomplete and
0: things like that. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is true. Well, I mean, you still can have some autocomplete to a certain extent because if you have the module name, then dot, and then the name of the function, that's going to be pretty clear. And then, obviously, any kind of locally scoped variables, you'll have some kind of autocomplete, at least you should. So that kind of stuff. But I guess it's not narrowed down, right, to... To something i mean the best you can have is probably pattern matching i mean i i i mean go doesn't have pattern matching right have you gotten a chance to play with that yet
1: yeah Go doesn't have pattern matching i think it's one of the things that surprised me the most about elixir the pattern matching is it's really cool
0: <laughs> yeah definitely like once i got into pattern matching it's like okay i i barely ever use an if statement and if i do i feel weird and i think about like should i actually be using an if statement because this doesn't seem right at all. There's something not quite correct about this. Yeah, I
1: remember learning Java you can do <clears throat> overloading for the functions. So you have different amount of parameters and have different functions with the same name. But I think the way it's done in a lecture with pattern matching, it's way, way better.
0: Yeah, with pattern matching, like underneath the hood I know it's done with case statements, but like, yeah, the way functions are, are known is with their arity, right? Which is also something that's a little bit weird. And you get used to it, right? Where it's like the name of the module, dot name of the function, and slash the, the number of arguments it takes. It's a little bit yeah, weird, get but, used to it, get, but... I didn't find why it was like that, or could we do without uh, it? That's a good question, actually. I'm not too sure, like, but if you think about it, every single language, like, they have to have a way to identify a function, right? And I think a lot of functions, they are identified by the argument types that they take and the name of the function. Right so like if you have a function called foo in java you could have foo that takes an integer and another foo that takes like an integer or like a decimal or a double or something and in java there're two different functions right as opposed to elixir you have it's a, it, it's talking about the, the the arity right how many arguments it is so i guess it's just like a slightly different way of about figuring out which function it is if i understand correctly yeah yeah so, but I think you can get overall pretty similar results, right? Because you can still do pattern matching to kind of make sure that you hit the right thing. So you can get similar stuff with it this way. But yeah, it, it is still weird, and and that's something that yeah, you just get used to it. I, I don't think I really feel strongly about for it or against it. It's just get used to it. I think the the part that took me some time to kind of wrap my head around is like the the capture syntax. Have you seen that one? Uh, don't remember. All right. So that's the one where you use like an ampersand on the outside, and then also you can use ampersand like one, ampersand two for like arguments.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, this one is it's definitely weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's very the weirdest part for me like is it's like, okay, we're programmers but we're using ampersand one instead of ampersand zero. This seems a little bit odd. So that's the only thing I find weird about it other than yeah, it is a really weird syntax. And oh, really weird thing think about this. <laughs> you yeah, think about right. the about the zero yeah yeah that's the thought that was very weird but you know once you just kind of remember it then it's okay i never really messed it up before but it, it i just feel weird every time i write it and then the other weird thing is anonymous functions have to be called with a dot before the parentheses yeah i still not used to this one yeah that's probably if there's a way that we can get rid of that i would definitely be happy but i i i know there's definitely no way to get rid of you have to do something because of the way it it works but I, I i remember listening to a podcast of one of the guys who uh created erlang and he was talking about the syntax of elixir saying that he of course he, he likes erlang one better i mean that's the one he he worked on right so but he still likes the new he still likes elixir syntax but he said it's, a, it's it is a little bit weird but he says he knows why that's done why they have that syntax but he didn't really go into why they actually do it but if somebody audience knows why that's like, why use a dot instead of something else, and if there's any other way to do it, like I would love to hear the story behind that, otherwise, of course, I'm just used to it. yeah, that's
1: the point you have to decide on
0: something. i I think this is just the thing that they decided on, yeah, but well, yeah, I mean you're but overall, I mean you're you're having fun, right? or you feel like you want to go back to go or go back to Flutter? I'm actually having more fun than I anticipated. <laughs> I think Elixir
1: is one of the languages that you, you come back to and you're you're happy to work with. There's many concepts are inherent to elixir that you can learn while using the language uh, more more passively than actually learning the, the concept.
0: What kind of concepts do you mean? Can you explain a bit more?
1: Well, there's the pro, uh, functional programming way of thinking. So, because elixir is a functional language, and you learn about this while using the language, you don't really have to go and look it up. What is functional programming? How how to think about it without using classes? This kind of concept is big in the language uh, pattern matching. I didn't know what it was, but by using it in Elixir, you sort of learn new ways of thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's. I really wish more languages had pattern matching. Like I would love because uh, I also use some Rust here and there. It just depends on the situation. They have a form of pattern matching similar to Elixir. Um, so I'm pretty happy about that I w- although I do like like the equal sign being pattern matching like that's super interesting
1: yeah th- this is the one that it's interesting. I didn't realize that at first you 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 see an equal sign, so of course it assigns something, but no, it's pattern matching too yeah it's it's inter- interesting
0: well I mean, it's not really pattern matching too it's always pattern matching. It's just like if you don't pin the the variable, then you're just gonna be rebinding re- it right. So right. it's it's a totally different way of thinking, and it, it takes a quite some time to wrap your head around it. And like I like that you can capture a whole variable, and then to the left of it, you can do an equal sign, and you can actually capture stuff within it. Or you can say that this thing has to be a specific struct, so you can kind of get like some some type some type checking in there, which is really really cool. And yeah, I mean the, it's really limitless once you start to understand it. It's, uh, I I don't know. I really wish people, I'm so lost at why other languages didn't pick this up when Elixir started coming out. Like, why would you not use this? It's just so useful. But I have no idea how the heck you'd implement it. I mean, to me, it's just like magic. Yeah, that's exactly as you say.
1: There's many concepts I'm looking at in Elixir, and I'm always asking myself why other languages are not doing the same as this thing. Like, pattern matching, it's it's awesome, right? And also, uh, yeah, as you say, the capturing a variable inside another variable with equal sign. It's it's genius. <laughs> Why would you not want
0: to do this? How do you feel about the ideas of Let It Crash? I mean, you must have experienced this one already because you're already much farther along than I thought you, you are in your Elixir journey. Yeah, I've
1: experienced it a bit, uh, but I'm always inhibited by the other ways of thinking, like, oh, I must handle the errors, I must do something about it, and then... My
0: coworkers are like, no, just let it crash. It's okay.
1: (laughs) It feels weird. It feels like I'm doing something terribly wrong.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. Initially, it's like, wait a minute. You mean mean I don't have to just say this, have like a catch-all and just say no? Actually it's it's funny, like at the beginning I was letting it crash, but then one of my client websites, they keep getting scraped all the time and they keep like trying to get to like slash WP admin, you know, like trying to hack into my WordPress, which we obviously don't have. We're using Elixir. So that route just kept failing all the time. So it's like, okay, no longer can I let this thing crash because like every day we're just getting like Tons of crazy requests, so actually, I start have to actually handling these random things and saying, okay, just throw up like a four hundred four to them just to let them know that there's nothing there, and then at least the site doesn't go down anymore, or not site go down, but it doesn't throw an error up, and everybody's all hands on deck trying to figure out where the heck the error is. Yeah, so you kind of have to learn where to let it crash and where to show the error and handle it. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the point I want I wanted to make is like. Although yes you can let it crash but the idea of let it crash is only for things that are like random and you don't really have control over so like for instance like if we had a crawler just try to crawl something which wasn't there and it happened like one time then you would just you know ignore it but like right now for this website it happens quite a bit so no longer do we ignore it we actually handle that so then we no longer have to worry about the situation anymore and we could just kind of keep going on so it's kind of like don't handle uh, things that may go wrong. It's just only handle things that do go wrong that you actually know will go wrong and you want to actually be able to recover from that. So that's kind of like where the idea of uh, let it crash happens. So it's like don't pre-op- preemptively, defensively program against stuff that may happen, right? right? Right. But I mean, writing stuff in Go is also quite interesting too because what I do like about Go is like um, you can just assemble a simple binary and then just throw it up on the server and then just run it. It's just self-contained and ready to go. Yeah, I have indeed. Uh, self contain is, is really
1: awesome. And the cross-compiling also, it's
0: very, very nice. You just have to run
1: one machine that you can compile for all the architecture. You don't have to compile it natively everywhere.
0: Yeah, that's the one thing that I wish was in other languages that comes and Go, is that you can just compile it for any architecture, any machine, and just kick out the binary to wherever. Like, if you're using a Mac, you can compile for Windows. Windows, you can compile for whatever the hell you want. It's just, you know, it's limit in, uh, limitless, right? It's really, uh, the story of Go for that is really amazing. Rust, I wish could could do that, but I guess they can kind of do something like that, but it's there's a lot of caveats, right, because it's more natively compiled. That's the big difference between Go and Rust is that, Plus, a little bit more native, right? In Go, there's like a VM that gets compiled with it. So there's like a, a buffer, right? That's what I kind of understand. A, a runtime garbage collector and stuff like that. And so you would figure that maybe there could be something similar for Elixir, right? But actually, the way Elixir and Erlang work is that you actually have to compile the, the code onto a machine. The same architecture, everything, as your server. Yeah. Completion on Elixir is very long compared to other tools I've used. I totally agree. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is a little bit painfully long, though. That 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 I totally agree about. Yeah, uh, Go is pretty quick, right? If I remember correctly. Yeah,
1: it's insanely quick. The formatting on Go uh, ensure that the compiler can make some assumption about the code. So it speeds up the compilation.
0: Yeah, I I, wish, I actually would love to know more about why the heck uh, Elixir does take so long. But actually, the cool thing about Elixir and Erlang also, I think, but for sure, I know Elixir is that it has a parallel compiler. So it actually can, can, can uh, parallel compile like all your files at the same time. Oh, I should look <laughs> into this. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's nothing you need to do, right? So like, let's say that you have a project that has eight files and you have eight cores, and if they don't depend on each other or whatever, right? Then all eight files a week about exactly the same time. Something like that. Like, you, you, you know, the, the the main issue that comes into play is like, you you know, the, the size of the project that you need to compile and then like it has to depend on another project and they depend on each other and then that's kind of where the issue lies, right?
1: All right. So it's enabled by default.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's in the, Are you looking it up right now? Yeah, it's enabled by default and it's been there for a long time. Like, I don't know any other language that has that. And another cool thing too, that's out of the box, is like you can do async Testing with all your cores too. Yeah, that's cool too. I also am surprised that no other language has this. But yeah, I, I understand how how complicated it can be and, and all that stuff. But like, why can't we do this? Why doesn't every language do this? This is what it should be. We got all these damn cores, and why, why not, right? Yeah. Well, the, also the program when you'll be running it or testing it, it will use uh,
1: all your cores depending on the language. Like Go will by default use everything that the machine can offer. I think when uh, I was testing the on Flutter, uh, you can pass a parameter to uh, have multiple simultaneous testing done at the same time.
0: Oh, really? Do you know what that one is? I would love to to use that because I think the the testing story in Flutter is not that good. Yeah, it's a J parameter, and then you just put a number like four. So that's how many to do, right? So if you know how many cores you had, then you could just say J and number of cores, right? Right, minus J, then four or four. Four cores. Then I guess the next thing is that you have to have like, how can you figure out through command line how many cores there are, so that you could just run this one command in your CI. <laughs> that, that 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 would be the next step, I think. Right, right. It should be enabled by default, to be honest. Yeah, well, actually, the the um the Dart auto hot reload stuff is actually not really. I mean, it's I don't know if it's not enabled by default, but I know that it is. It's not so simple to use. But Flutter actually built something into their system. So it's very simple to use, obviously, because they use it.
1: Right. Thank you. Yeah. I was wondering what you, you were talking about because I've have, I have not really used Dart standalone without Flutter. Yes, the hot reload with Flutter, it's, it's amazing.
0: Yeah. There's a bunch of packages on, on Dart on the pub.dev, which talks about the, the hot reload where they kind of help to assist that. And, uh, but it, what's kind of cool is that Elixir has that kind of stuff kind of built in. But there is like, you do usually want to add like an extra tool to actually watch the file system and then actually kick up the the build process. Obviously, Phoenix comes with that out of the box too, which is pretty cool. I don't know if Go has this ability. Does it have something like that?
1: No, I think you have to compile the whole thing every time.
0: Oh, just Go run all the time, right? Yeah. The thing that really kills me about Go is initially. I I think this has been solved, right? But initially there was this issue where you couldn't, you could not have. The dependency management problem was really a big issue. This was uh, many years ago, maybe eight years ago or something. This is five years ago. Yeah, I was
1: using Go at that time. I actually like it. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough, I liked it because you had to be up to date with your dependencies. You couldn't just ignore them. They had to be updated. So it lead to a situation where your packages were well, there more stable because people will not want to break the api otherwise all the dependencies will have to to update because all dependencies were always up to date didn't have to worry about them or we could compile the same binary twice and have oh and updated dependencies so i actually liked it uh, at that time but i just understand that it brings so much instability into your builds because like one month you're compiling, you're building and it works. The other month well, dependencies are updated. Maybe there's an incompatibility, your parameter change.
0: Well, I mean, what I ran into was like there was this group of, there's this team I, I joined and they were working together for like six months or more or something. And I think this was when... I mean, there must have been a lot of churn in whatever packages that they were using. And so when they pulled their... When they did a Go-Get at the time, like, obviously, they were all in sync and it just worked. And they were building like this for six months and then I joined a team and I cloned the product. I did a Go-Get and it couldn't build. And they're like, why not? I'm like... I don't know man. This is my first time using using uh, Go. Like you you tell me. I don't know what's going on. They're like, Well did you do go go get? Yeah. I did everything and they're like, I'm like, it looks like the the, the dependencies changed their interfaces or something. And they're like, Oh, hold on. Oh, okay. Yeah, we need a couple of days to update so that we can be in sync with your with your dependencies and fix all the issues that you're having right now. So like that was like my first foray into to go Was like, what the heck? Why it's so weird because, like, all other languages have something, right? NPM's got something, Flutter's got got their tool or at start, right? And uh, I mean, um, Mix, Mixer's got Mix, and so it's just like it was like a weird outlier at least at the time that they didn't have this. Yeah, you
1: had to you had to use the tool like uh, go vendor to vendor your dependencies and clone them into your project. Well, if you think about it, right? Like, sorry, go ahead. It was a miss. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, I mean, but if you think about it, right? Like this tool, this this language is built for Google, and Google doesn't have this problem. Why? Because they compile like fifty times a day, or whatever, right? Or whatever the number is. They 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 always kicking stuff into production all the time, so they're always on the latest, and so it, it this kind of problem never happens to them, right? Probably did. If it can go on, it it, it will go wrong. <laughs> There's no way around, around it. I can imagine, like, if if this is what the way it works, like, I cannot imagine this problem ever actually happening to them, right? Because they're always adding new engineers and people are leaving, right? So there's no way that they could continue this operation. If I mean, how could they get a new guy on board? Or they would just what copy their SCP their their go over to him. I mean, it doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really make sense. I think it, I just feel like they never happen. I think they have like a whole monorepo of stuff and they basically don't depend on much else that's what i am thinking but I, I don't know for sure
1: yeah that could be i think they do lots of monorepo at google Yeah, that could be
0: what they did. But okay, maybe we talk a little bit too much about your your past, right? But I I would like to kind of get more into here, right? So we're here to talk about your article. What got you interested to even make this article?
1: Right, so we were using an API from a third party, I think. We wanted to make a package for that API. And the package, well, we can't publish that package on the public public dependency management mix i think something like that so we can't pu- make it public so we have to have our own private repo and if it's if it's probably published on on private repo then it's not accessible to the public so the public dependencies uh, well the dependency cannot be reached by the public and the documentation cannot be on the package management the package manager website so if we want to have some kind of documentation available with that package. And we had to publish it somewhere with the mixed docs uh, command and GitHub pages. It allows to publish some uh, static files. So yeah, the idea was to just generate documentation from this project, put it on GitHub page. This way we will have access to the documentation. We encounter some problems because on GitHub, your GitHub page, you have to put static files somewhere. It's either in a folder or in a branch, but the action cannot modify the repo itself, right? Like the the docs folder, it's a folder inside the repo and the GitHub pages branch, well, it's a branch in the repo, but the action cannot modify the repo. So we have some problems with that. Yeah, having a, a documentation was the motivation for Produce.
0: yeah that makes sense i mean I, I know i had a my one of my clients recently asked me to publish the documentation for people to potentially uh take over his project for him and um we've actually been using we're not using github pages because um, we, we don't want people to to see this kind of stuff and uh but we we were using something else and uh, yeah, it did take some time to figure out how we can use it, and but it it's been kind of nice actually because we can also include stuff, and I think the the x the hex uh, is an awesome tool. I was going to say stacks, but XDAX is really a great a great tool. I think.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. Right.
0: So uh, on GitHub
1: Pages, in order to modify the repo from the action, we had to use the deploy key. So, right, the deploy key it allows you to clone or modify the repo from elsewhere. So for example, if you have if you have a product environment, this environment will need to clone the repo to build the project as an example. And the deploy key will allow to do this. There's also a a setting to allow write from that deploy key. And by using this, this setting, you can now run the x.command command. From the GitHub action, and it committed in a separate branch, like in the, in my article, I use the GitHub page branch, and once it's committed there, you can just push it and well, it's done. you have your docs published.
2: Hi, this is Charles Max Wood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level, you know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topenddevs.com/coaching.
0: Yeah, this is pretty pretty interesting. Uh, you did end up using the URLF setup beam, which to me, like, I feel weird to use that because you have that at symbol and the long uh, hash. Like, is that like a good commit hash for that specific uh, GitHub action that you actually have to use? I
1: just used the default GitHub action for
0: Elixir, and then at the bottom I added some.
1: Some commands for Git and he he mixed the command.
0: Yeah, but the action that you're using is Earl such slash setup beam at nine eight eight blah 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 like the long commit hash, right? Yeah. Like, how do you know which commit hash to use? You just pick the one that was in the in docs, or how did you choose which one?
1: Oh, I just click on the first result on the GitHub uh, GitHub workflow page. So let's see. Uh, if I open the Elixir project. Let's let's just find one. If you go to the action tab and you enable your your workflow your workflow, when you create one, you can select for any language or like you can select Node.js, Elixir, Deno, or other things like that. So just click on the Elixir uh, GitHub Action and it will automatically provide a template and this template will have this this hash. So I I didn't particularly choose a specific hash. I just used the one provided by,
0: by GitHub. Okay, I see. Yeah, and it seems pretty. I mean, it's really, really straightforward, right? So, but the only thing you did was you just generated the. So you created, you ran the docs, so you did it into the docs, made a brand new repository, which is interesting, with the initial branch, added the origin, and pushed it. And of course, force pushing. You don't feel crazy to force push?
1: Actually, I was thinking about this one uh, while doing it. If I wanted to keep the history of the GitHub branch, uh, but the history of the branch, I would have to add the changes after I've cloned the repo inside the repo. It was a bit weird. I didn't feel like it. <laughs> but the documentation, you don't really need to know what the... JavaScript changes between two versions, or the changes between the HTML files—it doesn't really matter because it's just documentation. You just run the command, get the latest version, and that's what you're using. So, yeah, I'm using force push to erase the history of the GitHub branch, branch, uh, GitHub Pages branch.
0: Yeah, I mean, which makes sense because you don't really need that, right? Yeah, you don't, you don't need the history of what necessarily changed. You just need the latest uh, documentation up.
1: Yeah, that's right. You don't need the, the changes in the docs. You just want the change from the, the code. And from that, you just need the latest version of the, the docs.
0: Okay, makes
1: sense. So you're, you, is your team using this now, you're saying? Uh, the part of the project that used this uh, dependency is completed, so we're not, we're not using it anymore. Uh, it has fulfilled its purpose, let's say.
0: <laughs> so it's a major success? Yes, it was a success. That's awesome. Yeah, I can I can imagine that this could be useful for some companies to kind of like publish yeah, maybe if you want to publish your your docs for whatever, or even make a website with it or whatever, right? I mean, I think this cuff could be doesn't it need to be only for for this, right? Because there is actually a couple of static site generators. I did some videos about them. You could use a static site generator to generate a website using Elixir. And just kick over the the, the thing. So anything that outputs docs or sorry, anything that outputs HTML you we can basically just use it, right? All right. I,
1: I haven't looked at the the website generators on GitHub page. I'm not sure if it will work. They have the they need to use markdown files and they will generate the HTML
0: files. So I don't think it'll work. Well, I mean if if you just I mean, if we just follow your method of of outputting HTML and then log, and cd into that folder, and then doing a git init and adding and pushing it and everything, we can basically just copy this idea, no?
1: Yep, this will work. Yeah this way.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that's what I'm thinking. Like, if you had anything you wanted to output in HTML from Elixir, this, you could just basically piggyback on all this work you did initially. So this isn't necessarily work that's only for docs, right? You can use it for anything that outputs HTML.
1: Yes, yes. For example, you can deploy your Angular website using this method on GitHub Pages. It will take care of generating the, the HTML files, pushing it on the GitHub Page branch, and it
0: will be live. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's, that's uh, this could be yeah, it could be this could be a game changer right here.
1: <laughs> Not so sure. There's also uh, another use case I've thought about. Let's say you're making a public package this time, but you have a development branch or a master branch, and your repo that's different from the one that's published you have some newer changes. Well, you can use this to deploy the documentation for the latest version. So that's why people who are using your package, if they want to use the latest version, they can go on the the HexDocs website, or if they want the master branch, you can go directly on the repo and see the documentation there.
0: Oh, okay, that's that's good. Okay, yeah. I mean, is there any more insights that you've gained from this? Is it does it really kind of increase your knowledge of of Elixir or something? Maybe just increase your knowledge of how to how to to fully utilize GitHub Actions. I would say it's
1: more about the uh, DevOps knowledge down Elixir specifically, right? So for example, the, the, right? Deploy key. I didn't know what was a deploy key, how to use it. But with this project, this deployment completed, I've learned how to use the deploy key. And now, for example, if you have a dependency that's private, use the deploy key to clone the dependency on the, on your CI, for example.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is this is pretty cool. So, not, so if this company ever lets you go, are you going to be kind of freelancing as a GitHub Action expert now with all your DevOps, DevOps knowledge you picked up? I don't think so. <laughs> I'm
1: more into programming than DevOps. But yeah, I like to do some DevOps
0: uh, sometimes. I mean, you could be a YAML expert, right? Cause YAML is a very uh, complicated kind of language, actually. So there's some really weirdness to it, too. I forgot what it was. But like I think a Boolean in, is actually yes, I think, in... YAML or something there's some really weirdness uh, to YAML yeah. I forgot what it was somebody was showing I saw a comment somewhere about this and I was like what really wow that's crazy and then like, I kept going because I, I didn't it didn't run into that issue but I was just like oh that's that's weird and I, I would hope I don't have to see that yeah
1: I don't know if you can use the uh, words like on earth but I think yes no is a
0: boolean which is weird this reminds you of uh, objective c and it's also yes and no if I remember correctly Oh, no. can be serious. <laughs> if I remember correctly, I believe it's yes and no. And you, you never done Object- Objective-C before? No, I don't have intention of using Objective-C. Okay, because uh, I I guess I'm an OG where I did my first iOS app in Objective-C, actually. I think before the ARC, before the automatic reference counting. So I had to do the retain and, and uh, release kind of thing mm. uh, to manage the memory. And um, anyways, like... Objective-C is both crazy to look at and kind of disgusting, but also very interesting and kind of fun because you can you don't use the dot syntax to call methods, you use the square brackets, which is really weird. Okay, but why? <laughs> <laughs> that's just what they decided to do. I don't know. It's a good question. I think it's influenced from Smart Talk or something, or Small Talk, sorry. Um, that's a good question. I really don't know why, but that's what they decided to do. And I have to say, actually using Xcode is kind of interesting because like, it, it like pops in your face with all this yellow stuff all over the place. I just, it's very, I don't know, it's a very interesting editor also. I kind of like Xcode, at least at that time it was fun. But yeah, I don't know. It's just sometimes these languages that are a little bit weird, they're kind of fun to use just because they are a little bit weird. And as long as you understand the weirdness of them, it's just refreshing, I think. They kind of do something different. Right, right. it's always refreshing to learn something new. I mean, when you went from Go and started doing Elixir, like let's say that, you know, because you and I are both big fans of the pattern matching, or like when you start doing pattern matching and you're like, oh, this is kind of fun, I want to use it everywhere, right? Yeah, it's game changer. It changed
1: not only how you think of your function, your case, or even conditions, it changes how you want to, to build it. You end up with this much, much smaller functions, you can avoid the function that just does routing. Like if you have a function that will dispatch your data to, to another function with the case, well, you can just remove all of this. You have only the the function that does the action and some pattern matching with it. It's a game changer.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely a game changer. So, okay. Um, is there anything else you wanted to to talk about from your article or do you think we, we covered everything? I think I, I did cover everything just be directed. It's a very short article, but the best part is it's short and to the point. So for busy people, you can pick this up and if you browse through it, I think you can get it in 30 seconds. And I think that's exactly what people want if they're very busy. So I think, I like that your article is very much to the point. Not like, well, you know, here's the theory. Who, who cares? Just give me the solution, right? That's Some Some days I'm like that. Some days, usually I want the theory. I want the solution, then I'll read the theory later. But I like that your article is just very clear. This is what I want to do. This is how you do it. Here's a sample YAML file. You know, get to it, right? Like, that kind of article is, uh, is really nice to have.
1: Right, right. It happens a lot of times that... Uh... <laughs> You know, you're you looking for a solution and then there's this long ass article with all these, why you want to do this or the other things the person tried or lots of useless bullshit. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, getting right to the point exactly in a clear manner, it's, it's important. Yeah, there's also often you maybe, I uh, don't know about, about you, but sometimes I ended up on, on Medium looking at a solution for a problem I was having. And the solution, sometimes it's shit. It's, it happens, right? <laughs> so having an article that's straight to the point like this, like it's the solution or why the solution. And it just, here's how to do it. It allows to learn the concept without having to right, s- uh, skip over the article. Right? So for example, in my article, I touch a bit on deploy key. So yeah, with this, you know, what's a deploy key? I'm telling you exactly how to use it right there's one line that says how to use it and there you go it's learned so if if you didn't like my solution for example well, it will not waste your time
0: right well i just remember like reading um an article like i was have you ever heard of KMM before no i haven't okay so KMM is called uh it's short for kotlin multi platform mobile which means that you can use kotlin to build ios apps android apps so it's supposed to kind of rival Flutter. But the way it works is that you build all your core business logic using Kotlin. And Kotlin is kind of like Dart where you can kind of magically compile to whatever. So you can magically compile this stuff to native code. And so that's where you can get the you know, you know get the multi-platform from. But the bad part about KMM is that you still have to build the UI by hand for every platform. So to me, that was just like a huge turnoff. Like, why the hell did anybody use this? And I went looking through and... I found an article written by a guy who you could tell that he's just a big fanboy of, of of KMM, and and that's fine, right? But try to be objective when you're kind of comparing. And his chart was like, oh, Kotlin's easy to use, Dart is just another language that you have to pick up. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait, wait, what? Like, it, the way he said it was like, of course you need to learn Kotlin to write, uh, you know, your mobile apps that's used in mobile app creation, but Dart is just another language that you have to pick up. It's like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, Kotlin is, you know, not used in all Android apps and also it's not used in native iOS development. They use Swift nowadays. So what are you even talking about? So we had like a chart. It was like easy to learn, not easy to learn. And like, something like that, it was very basic, like totally subjective review. And I was like, this is a waste of time. <laughs> Why would you even bother to publish this thing? Like <laughs> this kind of article bugs the hell out of me. It, it's fine. like to I understand there's going to be some bias. Isn't that, that's okay. But his bias was just too clear like his chart was really like that it was like easy to learn not easy to learn it's like wait based on what 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 do you mean right
1: right. and this these articles they kind of stay in your in your head for a while the bad feeling doesn't really go away that easily
0: well i can tell you this though his marketing is good because i can't forget about it (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) and right dark is so easy to learn right it looks just like typescript really like sometime was, uh, when I was working with Dart, I, I was working on the user script at home and TypeScript. So when I was at work writing Dart, sometimes I was, was writing some TypeScript and then, oh,
0: it works, cool, but something didn't work. <laughs> so it's
1: gets a bit confusing between the two because they're, they're so similar.
0: Really, I, I've actually managed to somehow never have to use TypeScript, which I, yeah, I'm surprised I haven't had to have to use that. Um, but I've also seen some projects where like, they, they're using TypeScript, but actually they're just using any everywhere. So it kind of make, made no real difference. Those are their worst.
1: <laughs> there was a library I was using in Angular, it was in, the, in TypeScript, and they were using any everywhere. Just, why would you do this? Why did you do this to me?
0: <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm aware that like initially you need to do that to actually really understand it, and like you need to slowly add types. But like if you just stop with just any and everywhere, and then like you you don't ever change it, then that's the problem.
1: I don't know. I've never really used any. Well, I'm using the uh, ESLint with the TypeScript and many rules to make the TypeScript more strict. So there's some keywords or. Aspect of the language I've never used because of the linting that prevents that. So yeah, using unknown instead of any, for example. But it still, when you when you're using this kind of rules, you can't really put any because it will complain at the at the translation phase or in the editor. And because there's red squiggly lines everywhere at the time, well, just, you make the interface that you need.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I know. I I agree. Yeah. I mean, if the, there's there's sorry. There there's
1: never really. Uh, a moment where you need to use TypeScript, uh, except when the framework is entirely built-in TypeScript, like uh, Angular. But I think it's nice to to add it. I don't think I'll go back to writing pure JavaScript
0: uh, ever again, unless it's mandatory. I don't think I'll ever go back to writing JavaScript unless I absolutely have to. I'd rather just use LiveView. Have you gotten a chance to play with that yet? Yeah, I'm using Phoenix LiveView at work. I think it's
1: it's great, and you don't even have to write the JavaScript. There's the it's like half server-rendered and half client-side, so the job is kind of split between the client and the server. I think it's a,
0: one of the, the things that I think it's it's awesome with Elixir and the Phoenix. It, there has to be something that you dislike because I'm getting a little bit annoyed that you like everything to be honest.
1: Uh, the uh, what I'm disliking is uh, the compilation times. They're absolutely horrible and inexcusable today and elixir and also uh, it's not right Sometimes i i open my workspace and the project won't compile for some reason and i have no idea why we'll have to use mix clean or dips uh, clean or stuff like that to get back to a to a working state there's this that i don't like but it's more of a so it's kind it's more some mistakes or bugs i don't think it's something that's made by the language or for the language
0: okay now i like you more because you start to complain a little bit about the project or about uh, using elixir <laughs> i i i don't i don't like I, I mean i think it's it's good to have something you don't like right and i like for people to kind of t- to say hey you know i love this language but these things like i love the fact that you're like this is unexcusable and i think that's a, a good point i would love to hear more about you know, is there a way that we can somehow speed up the compilation or something? The only thing I know that can kind of speed it up is that when you initially compile it, like anything afterwards, most of that stuff's already been compiled. So right. it's fine yeah. after
1: the first compilation, but it's
0: still long.
1: All right? It's longer than compiling Go program from scratch or Dart programs from scratch. It's longer than it's not longer than Java and C or C, but it's still very long.
0: Yeah, true. Um, but the, what's kind of cool recently is they do have the JIT in there, so you should get some eventually. You should get some really speedy code eventually, which is quite interesting.
1: Yeah. Oh, there's another thing I didn't really like about Phoenix. It's missing an auto format, but it was missing an auto format until like four days ago or something like that. The auto format has been published now, but still, i we didn't update the project yet, so. I'm excited to have some auto formatting for the hex files.
0: Well, I mean, there's a mixed format, right? But I guess there's a couple of things that uh, by auto format. Wait, maybe I'm missing what you're talking about. You mean like for VS Code? There's like if you save the file, it automatically formats it or something. If you
1: type mixed format in the Phoenix project, the live views won't be formatted. You know the oh, you mean the hex templates, right? Right, the templates. They won't be. They won't be formatted.
0: Oh, that's been out for some time, actually, I think. Are you sure it's only four days ago? I could have sworn it was a lot longer than that. I didn't remember this being announced and because they recently said that you can have new, you can have uh, formatters for, for this, right? And immediately I started looking for a Heeks formatter after that, but there was none. But I think an official one was released recently, like a couple months ago, no? Or am I wrong? uh no,
1: i'm just looking at the change look it's the
0: 6th april okay so not four days ago but still no, pretty recently <laughs> yeah because you're, you least four days ago i'm like that doesn't seem right because i could have sworn i heard this before three
1: weeks ago close close enough
0: yeah it's recent okay i thought it was actually much farther away than that but okay that that's still pretty recent but yeah it's still still not too recent so yeah that's i actually haven't tried that out i should definitely try that out Hey, you you tried it out, it works okay.
1: Try it out. Uh it eats yeah, it eats comments in the templates, so that's kinda of bad, but I guess maybe you don't need comments in these files.
0: Comments are for uh, kids, man. Who comments the code? You let the next guy figure it out.
1: <laughs> right, that's exactly
0: what I was thinking.
1: <laughs> um, besides uh, it uses a prettier style formatting. So there's people that don't like this. Uh, I think I like it. I use Prettier a lot. So yeah, it works. Okay, yeah, maybe I
0: should oh, there's check this also, thing out. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: There's better... It finds errors better now that there's another formatter in this. So for example, if you have an invalid character at a place or another, there is going to be an error for this one. And previously, there was no error. It will only crash if it if it has a... A failure during the compilation
0: or something like that. Okay. And yeah, this is part of Phoenix, right? So we could just pull it in immediately. Yeah, It's Phoenix Live View. Yeah, I just queued it up on my browser tab. Okay. Well, now that you reminded me of this, because I did remember this, but well, I did know about this, but I just forgot about it. Now uh, I may actually be happier.
1: Yeah, same. <laughs> it was a big pain point uh, in the theme. Sometimes it could be a view as so- well. You see some formatting yeah. error, but like, oh, I tried to format it, but formatting manually is a big
0: pain. Yeah, but you have to use a uh, Elixir 1.13.4 or later, which is quite interesting. Not just 1.13, but make sure it's four. So that's interesting. So you have to be on the absolute bleeding edge for that. Okay. Okay, but still not a big deal. I think that's fine. It's Usually the upgrade Elixir version you, normally isn't a big deal. It just depends. So it should be pretty easy to do.
1: Yeah, I didn't have any problem with, uh, well, not any, but I didn't have major problems when upgrading uh, Elixir version since I've started working with Elixir. Maybe there was uh, more problems in the past.
0: Yeah, I think it's usually things things get deprecated, but sometimes they actually disappear from documentation, but they're actually still available. And then sometimes things get moved around, but it's not really a huge issue. I think the biggest issue is usually there's new apis that that came out and new functions that you can use and sometimes like you forget about that like I was doing a coding test online one time and they said they supported elixir one dot something, but then like one of the functions they wanted to use actually was not supported, so I think they're still using an old version of elixir, but just didn't state that. And so that was kind of like the most painful part. Just like there's a function I really wanted to use, and I couldn't because it didn't support it. So I had to think about how can I, how can I do what I want to do? I forgot what the function was, but it was a little bit annoying. Copy the source code from the, from Elixir. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could probably copy and paste it in there, but it. Uh, I didn't, this is this is a while ago. I just remember how pissed off I was about. I think that was mostly an issue of. I mean, obviously it's not an issue of Elixir; it's an issue of that company. That I remember at the time, it it was not the what they said they supported; they didn't actually support. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that's like the like the biggest issue. I think it's just new stuff is actually not in there. They're trying to take things out. They usually try to put things in that are actually worth it. So that's fine.
1: I think one thing that Elixir could do to like have more changes is a mix fix command. For example, in Go, when there's old the API that gets duplicated de- or changed or something like this, you can use the command go fix the next version of Go. It will change your source code to, uh, to, remove or adapt the code for the new syntax or stuff like that. So I think in Elixir, if they want to let's say change some syntax or change some API, maybe they can add a fix command.
0: Yeah, I mean that that would be part, that would not be part of the formatter, right? Because the formatter they guarantee that you're going to have the same AST no matter what. But I think that could be good. But to be honest, I don't think that happens a lot from what I remember so it's not really required but I think go they have much more breaking changes in machine versions though
1: yeah, yeah but they, they handle those breaking changes
0: with the fix command so yeah so that's why they actually need that as opposed to the way right, I don't think elixir changes its syntax on a whim yeah exactly so for the most part that, that doesn't happen there is sometimes there's new syntax but mm, usually it's again it's usually added in rather than removed so I don't think that's a, a big deal but I'm aware of this of this kind of thing, and I know that Rust also has something too. But they solved their they solved the problems with additions, and then with addition, if you ever upgrade your addition, then there is a fixed command that it will go through and rename variables and everything else. So that problem is solved. I don't think Dart has anything because there's not. No, there is there is there was one tool like for for the uh, null safety right. So it just depends on the language itself. Yeah. yeah. But cool. I mean, if there's nothing else, I think we can transition over to PIX. you have something else you wanted to, to say about your article? No, uh, I've come with the, all the subjects I wanted to talk about.
1: Great.
2: Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium.
0: So while you think about your, your pick, actually, I forgot my pick, but <laughs> what was it? I did have a pick that I wanted to to uh, to share with you guys. What was it? Maybe you have something because I, I forgot my pick in my head. I know I made it at the beginning of the show.
1: No, I don't actually have something. There's the new uh, formatting for HEX templates I wanted to talk about. I think that's uh, all the picks I have. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think for me, actually, now that I, now that I think about it, there is something pretty cool that I'm I haven't gotten a chance to take a look at, but I think could be interesting. So, if you work with like a multi-tenancy system, you always want to make sure that you have proper authorization for data, right? Because you don't want customers' data leaking out to other customers. And apparently, there's some kind of authorization mechanism built into Postgres, which I just heard about a couple of weeks ago. When I, on my other podcast, I interviewed a I interviewed Superbase actually and we were talking about the, their their integration with Flutter, and they were talking about their system, and they said that their, uh, the way they use Postgres is they use this uh, row-locking system. Hmm. And I'm looking for the article. Hold on a second. Sorry, it's called Row-Level Security RLS, and it's actually built into Postgres, and there's a way that you can... On the row, build in some kind of authorization, so then you can really make sure that your your uh, your data cannot be read by people who shouldn't be able to read it.
1: Oh, so like users will be a defined concept in the database, and these user can perform actions.
0: I'm not too sure about how it works, but like the way that Superbase works is they try to lean on all the like the best in class tool that they find, and so they have this Frankenstein like system where it's like okay, the real time database uh, like. PubSub is using Elixir because they found that Elixir in Phoenix just works fantastic for PubSub. And then they took PubSub and they 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 didn't build onto it necessarily, but they used what's already there. They added in presence and ability to use the channels. So now they're kind of using all of the Phoenix PubSub stuff. And they're also using Go for something. I forgot what And actually a lot of TypeScript, JavaScript stuff for other pieces, right? So they have like a system that's just all kinds of different languages. Like I said, a Frankenstein-like system. And they also use a lot of stuff built into Postgres, right? So I think they have a GraphQL API or something. And they're using the one that's uh, in this PG GraphQL or something like that. They're using for that. And they use a lot of stuff already built into GraphQL or something that you can add into GraphQL, like a plugin. And to do the permissioning for the data, they use RLS, which is built into Postgres that I understand. Unless I'm 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 wrong in my understanding, I, I don't know exactly how it works. I have an article queued up about it. I haven't got a chance to read it yet, but I think this is something that could be interesting for for the audience and for people to to check out themselves to see maybe this could be something that can give you some assurance, right? That maybe you're doing stuff properly. So again, that's going to be row level security, and I'm going to drop the the link to the the podcast the editor so he can put that to the notes for us. Um, so for you, you're, you're picking the. Uh, Phoenix Live View formatter, right? Yes.
1: So my message will be: update your
0: Phoenix Live View version, get the other formatter, <laughs> and then enjoy your properly formatted HTML. Because I do remember that, like many years ago, like a PHP Laravel guy was like, "Well, how do I format the HTML?" I'm like, uh, "You you need to format it." <laughs> that was my reply. I was like you need to do that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Feels uh, like
1: going back to school when uh, learning how to code with Notepad++. Yeah,
0: I think the only thing you could do is like you can try to have like some people built one for Rails. I think it's like so if you could set the template as ERB, you can kind of do it because the syntax is so similar for for EEX. Oh, there's JS Beautify. I think it works kind
1: of well on the on the Elixir well the Phoenix templates. It works kind of well, but there's some. Uh, things that you don't want format. For example, the templates with the uh, with the end tag or the do, it won't format inside of these. But other than that, the HTML should be proper, properly formatted. So okay. GS Beautify,
0: it worked before, but you have some manual
1: work to do after it.
0: Okay, I didn't know about that. Well, I'm I'm going to stick to, because I basically hopped on the Hex train. I'm going to be sticking with, with Hex for right now. But maybe if I have some HTML, I might look at that. There, I mean, just normal HTML. There's a lot of plugins I think for that in VS Code and whatever else, or even websites where you can copy and paste and they can format it for you.
1: Yeah, for pure HTML or JavaScript, TypeScript, I'm personally using prettier. It's since it's very popular, there's a good chance that people know about it, and it's it will be available available for their editor, and that's a big advantage because prettier is available for pretty much everything.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, uh, thanks again uh, for coming on. I really appreciate your article. I mean, if you're enjoying Elixir, feel free to write more articles and share your experience. Because, yeah, something like this. I mean, it's great to have in my arsenal, or at least I know that I that's already out there. I could just find it in case I actually need it someday. Yeah, document your journey and and help others out because I think that's you know very useful for you to kind of solidify your knowledge, and also useful for people to also solidify their own knowledge or even make sure that they. Or help them to understand something that they just don't quite get, like how can I do this stuff in Elixir and and GitHub, uh, something like that. So yeah, thanks, thanks again for having me.
1: And at, at the Draco Digital, there was it was there were some plans to build more articles about our journey with the, the program we're, we're doing. So it was one of the first <laughs> steps uh, making this article. They, they had plans to build some kind of blog with where all employees can put the solution to different problems they had. And I just went away and published that article I made on, on other platforms.
0: Great. Uh, well, I mean, I, you can probably ping us back if you have some articles you think we should check out. And then uh, we may have you back around and talk about those. So let us know.
1: All right. Thank you very
0: much. Awesome. Thanks again for coming.
2: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit dot to learn more.